Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I am your host, Anna Fishson, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Paul Verhaga about his recent book, What About Me? The Struggle for Identity in a Market-Based Society. It was published by Scribe in 2014. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. So Paul has a PhD in clinical psychology and and a special doctorate in psychodiagnostics, from University of Ghent. He received his initial psychoanalytical training at the Belgian School for Psychoanalysis and then at the École de la Cosfordienne, uh, Paris, Brussels. Paul is senior professor at the University of Ghent in the Department of Psychoanalysis and Counseling Psychology. He is an analyst in private practice and member of the European School for Psychoanalysis and the World Association of Psychoanalysis. He's the author of hundreds of articles and numerous books, originally, I think many or or all of them published in Dutch, initially and translated into English and many other languages. I'll just, I'll name some of them now. Uh, Does the Woman Exist from Freud's Hysteric to Lacan's Feminine, published by the Other Press in 1999, Love in a Time of Loneliness, Three Essays on Drive and Desire, uh, published most recently by Karnak in English in 2011. Beyond Gender, From Subject to Drive, 2001, from the other press. On Being Normal and Other Disorders, Handbook for Clinical uh, Psychodiagnostics by the other press, 2004. And one of my favorites, uh, New Studies of Old Villains, A Radical uh, Reinterpretation of the Oedipus Complex, published by the other press in 2009. Um, Okay, so this book that we'll be discussing today is... I would argue sort of more accessible than maybe some of the others, uh, more polemical, I believe. Um, It's almost uh, completely devoid of of Lacanian or or even psychoanalytic jargon, uh, though certainly, I mean, it's openly very much informed by the concepts and and, and ethics of psychoanalysis. And I'm just going to uh, very briefly uh, summarize the book to guide us here. The first, the first part of what about me, and it's it's divided roughly into two sections with a kind of inter, intermezzo, uh, a short intermezzo um, in the begin, in the middle. So the first part traces conceptions of identity historically and comes to the conclusion uh, that in the current neoliberal climate in Europe and the U.S., we tend to believe that our identities are internal and they're largely determined by genes and the brain and that they're uh, mutable only like within certain parameters with, according to our sort of biologically given abilities. And we also tend to believe that we're naturally selfish, individualist, and unethical, which I can say is confirmed by my experience teaching uh, uh, communism. A lot of my students say, well, this was utopian and crazy because we all know that we're naturally competitive, selfish, etc. So anyway... Um, so uh, Paul, you know, makes this point that we tend to believe we tend to believe that ethics are sort of out there; they're external. But but he says they very much inform identity, of course. Anyway, so these beliefs and the consequent 
actions uh, lead to specific types of mental disorders or mental states and uh, behaviors like aggression and competitiveness. And then the second part of the book uh, discusses neoliberalism as today's version of social Darwinism. And Paul argues that neoliberal ideology has put forward this model of identity that is uh, too grounded in like... uh, a kind of consumerist, depressive hedonism, maybe, and it's made us sick. You can correct me, by the way, this, giving a kind of long... No, no, okay. you're, doing perfect, you're doing a perfect job. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so anyway, everything from like education to healthcare has been organized to suit the market, and there's this constant evaluation and measuring of success, like in scare quotes, success, which is defined very narrowly in economic terms. And as a consequence, uh, there are all these disorders keep popping up, like ADHD, bipolar, various psychosomatic problems. All of these are on the rise. And you also claim that there's no more authority. Toward the end, you, you make this claim about authority, that there's um, only a kind of static elite that's... Authority itself has been kind of evacuated and responsibility along with it. So we have instead... Uh, that's the next book. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> By the way. But, yeah. but it's, okay, but it's also toward the end of the first one, I think. I mean, I picked up on this Foucauldian, this Foucauldian argument you make about, like, the, the sort of... We very much live in this panopticon world where we feel someone is always watching, evaluating, exercising power, but we, we, don't, we don't know who it is. <laughs> Half the time, we're just, we have, we just, we've kind of internalized um, this, these disciplinary mechanisms, basically. Anyway, so then you end on this prescriptive note, which I will not... Maybe that's also the next book. I don't know, but uh, you do end on a prescriptive note. Maybe we can, we can learn that, what that is at the, toward the end of the, um, the interview. But, but please, please now begin by, um, by telling us about the impetus for the book and whether you think, what do you think about what I said that it's kind of, that it, there's something different about this book uh, from your other books and that, uh, and perhaps you can talk about the intended audience. Mm-hmm. It was explicitly written uh, to reach a larger audience, mm-hmm. and that's why I have uh, omitted uh, the psychonautic and especially the Lacanian psychonautic jargon because that makes it a lot more difficult for other people to read it. And I wanted to, you know, to bring the message. Let us put this. Let us let us put it in that way. And uh, it succeeded quite well because it was a huge success over here. Uh, I sold 40,000 copies in Dutch. It was translated in German and then in English. Uh, so, yes, it worked out fine. Was this something that um, was brewing for a long time for you? And um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about... The result, let's say, of some 10 years of clinical work and thinking about diagnostics because I'm teaching psychodiagnostics and the original title of the book in Dutch is much simpler, just plain identity. It's <laughs> nothing more than that. And um, the book started, let's say, around 2000 when I had to come to the conclusion that uh, all psychodiagnostics were about personality disorders mainly and secondly that in clinical practice we were definitely seeing other um, mental problems than at the time of Freud. Of course this is not new but it it came as a kind of an aha erlebnis for me that there was a link between um, changes on the level of identity, the mental problems and the changes on the level of society. 
And that had been growing for a number of years, and at a certain moment, you, you just see it. Mm-hmm. Especially because I saw it at the university itself. The university had changed, let's say, in 15 years' time from a, what I would consider a classic academic world into a competitive uh, corporate world, which isn't a very good idea as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I'd love to, I, I can't wait to talk about the, the DSM and you, you really kind of take it down. <laughs> you, you attack yeah, it essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, but I want to take a little bit, a step back to the, to, to, sort of start from the beginning of the book where you kind of provide the backdrop for what you're going to be talking about in the second half about the disorders, et cetera. Because you discuss, um, you know, neoliberalism, but also, but here, scientism. Um, and I was just curious, well, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you mean by this kind of dominance of scientism rather than science, because I've also, you know, it's, it's pretty clear to me that we haven't had this much faith in science since like the 19th century or something. It's, it seems like there's a kind of blind, almost religious belief in science, uh, which you call scientism. Anyway, and then also, you know, how, how does psychoanalysis help us um, understand, and this is a big question now, how does it help us understand uh, these, these events or these trends and neoliberalism maybe, or maybe how ideology functions in general? How does it help you understand it and how does it help yeah. us? And, and those are many questions. I know, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> maybe you can just pick um, one. <laughs> yeah. The first question, maybe. Uh, and what was the first question again? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I had a question about uh, scientism um, and this rise of... Yes, okay, belief. scientism. Yeah. Um, there are two mistakes about science today. First of all, we reduce science to positive sciences, mm. um, meaning that the whole idea of human sciences, as we used to have until 15 years ago, has almost disappeared, and we are applying the uh, methods of empirical positive science on human science, and that just doesn't work because we don't have the same um, possibilities for measurement, and we don't have the same possibilities for generalization. So, uh, to put it briefly, it sucks. <laughs> and we need to go back to a combination between qualitative, uh, qualitative science and quantitative science on the level of human sciences. Uh, so, I'm, just to be sure, I'm not against empirical positive science. Of course not, it would be stupid, but uh, we should be very much aware of the fact that those methods applying in human science just doesn't work. Okay, right. This reminds me, we'll just talk... To give you, just to yeah. give you one example, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the major thing in uh, positive science is replication. Hmm. Well, mm-hmm. just look at human science and try to find a, a replication research. You won't find any. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you also talk about, uh, this is a good point, you also talk about, uh, later in the book, actually, uh, measurability and how, you know, yes, the, these yes. kinds of, um, uh, the, these uh, the sciences, like, loosely, like, base, basic paradigms of science are people try to loosely apply them to fields where they don't sort of belong. I, it made me think, and how this, but then you link it also to, like, neoliberal thinking, which is interesting, right? Yes, uh, 
because neoliberalism, of course, is an ideology. And, ideology, yeah. and every ideology, once it is dominant, determines our way of thinking. So uh, today, the dominant ideology is neoliberalism, and it dictates how we look at science as well. Mm-hmm. The meaning of science today has to be efficient, it has to bring in money, um, and it becomes reduced to the practical aspects of it. Uh, so as long as science brings something new that can be brought to the market, it's all right. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, then you don't, you don't get any funding. Right. So, so these principles are then linked to market and the economy, which with yes. this kind of economism, which domi- also dominates everything. Um, but what, what do you yeah. think about, um, like, so, so what does psychoanalysis have to say about this? You know, uh, I think that's what, in, in a sense, the whole book is about, but it's a little bit hidden in the book. So I was, I was wondering if you yeah. could well, maybe... It's yeah. much more about the ethics of psychoanalysis. Mm. Uh, and that is uh, very much in the book, although I don't call it explicitly uh, in that way. Uh, let's go back to the clinical practice. Let's mm-hmm. go back to psychodiagnostics. That's the easiest way to make it clear. Uh, Freud in his time, discovered that uh, a number of mental disorders were caused by the interplay between the individual and its history on the one hand, and the Victorian society on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So he treated his patients with, with the methods that he invented, but at the same time he was very critical of the, uh, about the society, about the Victorian society, and he developed a kind of psychonautic ethics uh, as well. And a number of things have changed because of Freud and, and, and his theory and his practice. Today, we are living in a completely different society with a different superego, and it creates other mental disorders, meaning that we as analysts should be aware of that and should voice our criticisms as well, uh, because the story that the contemporary mental disorders would be genetic or organic or whatever, uh, it's just not true. There's no scientific proof whatsoever. Mm. But there's much for their social causation. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's, uh, yes, and you make this argument. Well, maybe maybe we can jump a little bit to uh, to the disorders chapter because one of the things that's interesting to me is Hmm, maybe you can explain this. Um, on the one hand, you seem to be arguing, or you are arguing, that the DSM, I love that your point that it's, it's just circular. It's, it's a, it's one giant tautology. So basically, yeah, like it describes, uh, behaviors and then calls it well, something. The DSM is a very interesting, uh, example yeah. mm-hmm. of the ethical problem that I have with the contemporary, uh, psychiatry as well. Because if you compare, uh, the, psychodiagnostics at the time of Freud and the contemporary psychodiagnostics, there's a huge difference because, let's say, until something like 30 years ago, we started uh, our diagnosis with the problems that the patient was experiencing. Mm. The, the diagnosis was based on his suffering, on his problems, etc., etc. Today, if you look at the DSM, the criteria used uh, for a diagnosis are social criteria. 
Uh-huh. So it's not about the patient, it's not about the subject, it's about the way he or she uh, doesn't fit in uh, a given social uh, ideal. Okay, yeah, if the person is functioning or not, is that what you're trying to suggest? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I, so then I was, I was a little bit surprised when you kind of, p- you, you pivot pretty quickly and say, well, the, these disorders, so on the one hand, it seems like you're saying that um, a lot of these disorders are created by ideology. In fact, they're kind of, um, they function as simulacra. They're, they're modalities of social control. They're not really based in reality. This yes, is something true. the ideology yep, creates yep. to sort of drive itself uh, and to police the population in a way. Um, on the other hand, you do, you do acknowledge that there is a rise in certain disorders. So you seem to, you seem to then pivot and say, well, they do exist. I don't want to suggest that there's just no such thing. So I'm wondering how you reconcile that, basically, because I, I see that you're, you're maybe, maybe that's a tension in the book. I don't know. I, I've read other paper, another paper of yours, actually, where you, you don't use any DSM category, but you talk about new disorders or new problems that yes. patients are coming with, right? Not, not, nothing to do with DSM categories, but I, I'm just, so I'm, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. Like, on the one hand, there's, the DSM is multiplying and disorders are, are just like multiplying there. But on the other hand, there are, in fact, new disorders that, are, that have maybe not a biological origin or neurological one, but a social one. I don't know. That's what you seem to be saying. Well, of course, there are uh, a number of new uh, disorders and there are quite many people who are suffering from them. But the question is, how do we define them? Mm-hmm. Um, but a very general statement, the way in which we define a problem determines the solution. The, if you look at the way the DSM defines the problem, uh, it's a social problem. It's, but it's a social definition, so the, the answer to the problem definition by the DSM is adaptation. People have to adapt to the, the social ideal. The way in which an analyst looks and listens to problems has to do with the individual. What is his problem, what is her problem, and what might be the solution for him or for her? That's a totally different approach. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a, a, the, the most easiest example, uh, how do you pronounce that in English? ADHD? Yes. Attention deficit hyperactivity yes. disorder? Okay. If you define it in that way, you are defining the problem for the school, for the parents, and for the teacher. Mm, because exactly. that's the way they experience the problem. Mm-hmm. It's their problem. If you listen to the child, you will hear other things. What do you it hear? would be uh, stupid to deny that a child doesn't have a problem. Of course it has a problem, but it is not very well defined by calling it HDHD. Uh, so we have to listen to the child in order to find out what his or her problem really is for him. Mm-hmm. And that's very individualized. Instead of trying to, mm-hmm. instead of trying, uh, to adapt him by the use of medication, uh, well, it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yet, I, I guess, hmm. but do you think that there is something going on with the overdiagnosis or that, <laughs> I, I miss, <laughs> yeah, that was a slip, a bit of a slip, but uh, the a diagnosis of ADHD and the rise in these diagnoses, I mean, is there something in reality, in other words, that's, uh, is there a problem that's growing? And maybe we're defining it the wrong way, but what is it? Why are so many children, is it purely ideological? Is it purely uh, fantasy? 
uh, that because you know kids can't sit still in, in school, or is it kind of is there a social okay. call? Let, let's try to be clear on that point. Mm-hmm. First of all, we have many many young people and children who are suffering. Uh, from mental problems and who may even have mental disorders. I'm quite convinced of that. Mm. So it's not fantasy, it's real. Uh, secondly, the way in which we define those problems, in most cases, is not really helpful. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we need to do something uh, about the diagnostic system if you really want to help them. Because basically, uh, and in America, that's probably the same as over here, um, the way in which we diagnose them uh, means that they are medicated and that they receive uh, a form of um, behavioral therapy that obliges them uh, to to adapt, that disciplines them, uh, but that doesn't really help them. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, I By think the I way, know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also an illustration of bad science. Uh, if you use this kind of diagnosis, meaning the DSM, uh, then you will put the child into a category that is scientifically not sound at all. There are many, many, many research projects who have demonstrated that the children who are put in one category based on that diagnosis are fundamentally different and that they have different problems. Hmm. And this is not psychoanalytic research. This is uh, simply psychological research. Mm-hmm. So to put them in one category is, is wrong. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I, I, I want, I'd like to at this moment maybe actually zoom out a little bit uh, because you you do a lot to set up in the book. Um, you 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 talk a lot about the the sort of social and ideological backdrop for a lot of these developments that you're you're discussing now. And one of the things um, you discuss is uh, you have this big chapter on uh, Enron society. You call it, yes, and there, yeah. yeah and there's another chapter uh, then on perfectibility. So, um, so, so you do you very much link these individual yes, uh, that, you know, with children and adults um, that their their problems are linked to these very uh, you know social and ideological uh, problems. And one of them is this so-called Enron thing, the Rankin Yank, uh, as as they called yeah. it, and you you borrow and and meritoc- I, I love it. You attack basically meritocracy or at least meritocracy in this. In this neoliberal context, and I'd like you to—I'd like you to address that. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about why you think meritocracy is 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 bad in the, in this context, or that it stifles. I think you claim that it stifles innovation. Well, you have you have to put it into the context. Eh? Mm-hmm. Meritocracy is not bad by itself. It is bad in the way it is applied today. Um, in, in that respect, there's a huge difference, or there used to be a huge difference between Europe and the States. In uh, mm-hmm. Europe, we used to have a, an educational meritocracy, meaning that... Uh, the education was organized in such a way that everyone could go to very decent schools, could go to decent university uh, almost for free. And this is still the case in Belgium and Germany. It's not the case in Holland any longer. In the UK, it has never been the case. Uh, so we had an educational meritocracy where everyone started almost at the same level with the same possibilities. In the States, there was an economic meritocracy. 
And that's something different, uh, this, the idea. <laughs> but this is the, the version of the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can make it. Uh-huh. Right. And if, if you, and if you don't make it, you make... must not be working hard enough. Is that... <laughs> yes, that's mm-hmm. true. And one of my colleagues, who is an American, uh, put it, has put it in the following way. He asked me, do you know why we call it the American dream? And I said, no. And he said to me, because you have to be asleep to believe in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah, so it's, it's meritocracy, but okay, what, is, what, is, what constitutes merit? I mean, that's really the question, well, the, right? The basic it's, mistake about the contemporary meritocracy, the basic mistake about the contemporary meritocracy, it's difficult to pronounce in English, <laughs> yes. uh, is that people do not start at the same level. Right, yeah. If you want to have a, a meritocracy in the original meaning of the word, you need to have the same starting point. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the same starting point, then you don't have any meritocracy. And today we are told that we are living in a, a meritocracy, but it's not the case. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's an excellent point. You also make another excellent point about measurability and, and how uh, things are only worth something if they can be measured. And so if it's not measured, it's like it's disqualified altogether. But And then the things that are measured are kind of... The, you know what? It made me think I taught for eight years at a small liberal arts college, and every semester the students would fill out these course evaluations. Now, I mean, it's a very common thing. I'm not trying to pin it on, you know, where I taught but only. But anyway, at the end of these evaluations, there'd be this one question, which was, um, what is the intellectual value of this course? And it would be this one to seven, like rate it one through seven, right? And it always, yeah. it always puzzled me. I thought, my God, first of all, like, it's, it, there's an assumption here that this, this is, is measurable. This is a perfect example. <laughs> by the way, this is a perfect example about science. Ah, huh? uh, yes, uh-huh. Right. It's a, um, you are, you are using a scale, uh, and they will, at the end, they have uh, numbers, and then they will do statistical, uh, they will apply statistical methods on, on those numbers, and that is scientifically completely unsound. You can't do that, because they're not real numbers. Right. It's interval measurement. First of all, yeah, how so can you measure? <laughs> right, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Every methodologist will tell you that this doesn't work, that, that this, huh. this isn't scientific. Mm-hmm. It's a so-called Likert scale. You probably know the name. Yes, yes, um, yeah. exactly. And it's used all the time, today, and, and it's just mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. But I guess, I guess, uh, you know, people will probably ask, well, what is it? The, what's the alternative, or even alternative? Um, like, what, what there is no alternative. Mm-hmm. There is no alternative. Qualitative measurement. Mm-hmm. Right. We used to have it until 20 years ago, so uh, <laughs> people who are saying that there is no alternative uh, don't know their history. Mm-hmm. And, and, and alternative to, because, you know, I, I just thought that, um, I mean, I, I know the way that you mean meritocracy, and you, you put it in a very specific context, but I thought, you know, what is the alternative? It, it does seem like an alternative to meritocracy, or the kind of meritocracy we have. So is it something, do we have to go back? Is, it, is this ultimately a conservative argument? Do we go back to something we had previously? No, of course not. And, yeah. and first of all, it's, it, it's impossible to go back. And secondly, uh, even if it would be possible, uh, I, for one, uh, would not uh, want 
to go back. Um, <laughs> the idea that it used to be much better uh, is, is you know, testifies to the fact that we don't have a good memory. And that's not the history. Um, yeah. The problem that we have with uh, the measurement and the meritocracy has to do with something else. It's something that you mentioned yourself earlier in the interview, and that is the uh, obligation to be competitive. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the implicit idea in the neoliberal meritocracy is that there's only one winner. Uh-huh. It is up or out, uh, rank and yank, etc. So that that's uh, implicit in that idea uh, of meritocracy, and that's that explains the the failure of the system. And if your students were telling you that's the way we are, <laughs> to a, up to a certain point they are right, but they should they should have said this is the way we have been made. <laughs> And uh, let me go back now to biology. There's a very uh, interesting uh, number of ex- experiments that has been done in the States uh, by a Dutch-American biologist, Frans de Waal. You're probably not familiar uh, with his work. Uh, he's working at uh, Emory University mm. with primates. Uh, beautiful research from a scientific point of view and uh, I will give you the, the summary what he has discovered is that in primates meaning in us as well there are two behavior clusters there's a cluster that drives us in the direction of a group uh, working together uh, solidarity, sharing, etc. etc. Mm-hmm. and there's another cluster uh, of genes that drives us in the direction of competitiveness, of egoism of uh, winner takes it etc. And so, so those two clusters are inmate. And he has demonstrated at the same time that the surrounding where his animals are living, and of course as being a scientist he can manipulate those surroundings, that the surrounding decides which of the two clusters gets the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is really important. Uh, if you, your students are telling you that they are competitive, they are right. But what they forget is that the other part is in them as well. <laughs> See, if I had known this research, I would have used that argument. I, I basically came down on them and said, I don't want to hear the word human nature, you know, ever. <laughs> because I was teaching them history. So I was teaching against, yeah. against the whole idea that there is a human nature that we can even access. Well, of course there is, but it's accessible. I will send you the YouTube, um, a beautiful YouTube illustration uh, by Franz de Waal. Beautiful mm-hmm. experiment in that respect. Great. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring him up in the book. I was very curious, but I'm glad there's. I'm glad it's on YouTube. I'm glad there's more out there for me to to show the students. Um, I, I think what's what's interesting, what's whirling, if that's the right word, around in all of this, and what we're talking about. Of course, the nature nurture debate, but also, it's so interesting. So I, I, there's 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 this because uh, you talk about. Um, in the last maybe 50 years, if, if do we really believe in the mutability or, or immutability uh, of the self? What do we believe, that the self or the identity is immutable, or do we believe in its radical mutability? And I think it really strikes to me, it is really striking to me that within capitalism or consumer capitalism in particular, there's this like a stark contradiction, right, which nobody ever 
or a few people address, which is that on the one hand, we see all these discourses uh, proliferating, especially in the early tw- since the early 20th century, about authenticity. That we, you know, find your true self, express your true self. Uh, so it's a kind of um, depth model of identity. And then, on the other hand, there's this totally opposite idea that, and it's everywhere too, that you can be anything you want to be. You just have to remake yourself, provided you try. You know, it's effort. You, know, you, you mentioned this too. So there's this obvious antagonism, and it's it seems to be covered over with this fantasy of the of consumption, right? Like, um, I don't know, that somehow manages to, to screen it out, or, or even with maybe identity itself, like this idea, this notion of identity, that gender identity or ethnic identity, um, that's kind of, um, you know, stands in for, for these countries. So I, I wonder where you think we're heading. Where, where are we on this, on this tip of immutability, mutability, and how is it affecting? I mean, is this why we're accepting some of these... Um, Diagnoses so readily, like uh, ADHD. Why well, is that? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it, depend, it, it depends on your definition, on the definition of identity, because <laughs> we are not talking about uh, mm. positive scientist concepts. Uh, in my book, identity uh, is such that there is no authentic authentic, true, original identity whatsoever. Uh, we start our life with a blank slate. And uh, you can illustrate that very easily if you look at adoption. And, um, hmm. The child is born in, 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 uh, in the middle of Africa and adopted by American parents and, and raised in New York will develop a New York identity. Uh, <laughs> if the same child had been adopted over here in Belgium and Ghent, he would have developed a Flemish identity, which is totally different. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't treat so identity as this, right. Mm-hmm. So that's a major point uh, for the, the impact of the environment. Of course, of course, there's a bi- biological um, underpinning uh, upon which that psychological identity will be constructed. That's true, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But how does this... Um I'm curious what you think, where, where we stand as a culture with regard to these ideas and whether, you say, like in one of the later chapters, this was, um, you touched on this earlier in the interview already, but I guess I'm, I'm curious how you would develop this. So you said, you know, if the 20th century is the century of the child, which is a kind of trope that's out there, the 21st century is the century of the disturbed child because all of, all of these diagnoses are mushrooming and one of the points you make which I, I think is, is, is really good is that um, it, what's interesting is not that okay it's happening but but then why are we so ready to accept it why are we what is it about our beliefs that that make us so eager to, to, to get these diagnoses for our children and for ourselves right like um, why are why is there no anti-psychiatry movement anymore you know etc one of the main reasons why we are so ready to accept the diagnosis either for ourselves or for our children is that it gives us a sense of relief. Uh, it makes it possible for us uh, to feel less guilty. And that has to do, of course, with the dominant narrative. If the dominant narrative tells you that you are that perfectibility is there, that everyone can become what he or she wants as long as he tries hard enough, then if you don't make it, if you fail at school, if you fail in your relation, if you fail uh, on a professional level, then uh, there are two possibilities. Either it's your fault because you didn't work hard enough, or there's a factor uh, external to you uh, which has made it impossible for you to perfect perfect yourself. And that's where the disorders come in. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, 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 then you can, Especially you're, you're, you're ill. You're, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Uh, especially with the parents. Uh, I don't know if you are, if you have children yourself. I do. But if you have, mm. yeah, well, if you have children, of course, you're, you never feel safe <laughs> any longer because you feel responsible for your child. You want to do the, you want to have the best for it, etc., yes. etc. And then at a certain point, with every one of us, something goes wrong, something fails, and if something seriously goes wrong, uh, then you, you are looking for the, in the mirror and asking yourself, what did I do wrong? Because you feel responsible in one way or another. Um, and if there is no answer, uh, then the only answer that comes up is it must be your mistake. <laughs> if at that point, a professional tells you that your child is suffering from a disorder, it comes as a relief. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, but, it, but that feeling that you're ultimately responsible is also created by, by a certain ideological climate, obviously, because the parenting, the pressures of the parenting discourses are so, so intense now with all the focus on milestones yeah. and et cetera. It's, so you're right, it creates the problem and the solution, maybe, <laughs> this kind of um, ideological climate. Yes, Mm-hmm. Which is a big market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But okay, so I, I want to go back, or not back, but just um, juxtapose this with what you think about again. That's really going on. Is is the younger generation now? I mean, uh, maybe can you link somehow uh, the, the ideology to what you're actually seeing in the clinic? In other words, um, do you what what is it? What is produced? Um, but by the the neoliberal thinking and this these kinds of pressures that it puts on the individual uh, in other words, the failure is in you if you fail it 's your fault etc um, or and also I, related to that i 'm interested did, does it privilege does the, this this climate this neoliberalism privilege certain kinds of traits that are then in their extreme you know they become quote disor- disorders i mean this is the kind of again this is sort of paradoxical but Maybe you can speak to that a little bit because you, you know, you sort of uh, at one point describe like who who would survive, like who would do really well uh, with this in, in Enron, for example. And it, it, you know, there's a certain profile, and it sounds almost, you know, in its extreme, it sounds uh, psychopathic. Yes, uh, well, it does, and uh, in the meantime, there has been uh, done some research on that that confirms that idea <laughs> that the characteristics that you need to rise in the corporate world are quite similar to the uh, traits described by, uh, what's his name again, Robert Herr, by Robert Herr, <laughs> who is the, well, at this moment the most important researcher on psychopath, psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's, it's not uh, just imagination. There has been done research on it. Mm-hmm. So, so, there, so, so there are these... The main thing about psychopathy is the lack of guilt. Uh-huh. And, 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 if you want to write in a corporate world, you, you don't have much use for guilt. Uh-huh. No guilt and, and malleability, I guess, right? You can adapt... Yeah. <laughs> emotionally and uh, and behaviorally um, so but uh, but what uh, and I guess maybe it's not totally related but I, I kind of juxtapose these two questions what about again maybe you can talk a little more about what you're actually seeing um, I re- like I said I think I mentioned this earlier I, I read a paper of yours that was in a, a collected volume I did another interview on this podcast actually and you mentioned that there are these um, 
that there's a, there are a lot of the new disorders are, are somatic in nature and that they they are not like the old conversion hysterias and should not be interpreted as such because they're not really symbolized. And I wonder if you were thinking, if this is in the backdrop of the book that you don't talk about in this particular book because it's more for a popular audience, but if this is something that you encounter that you were thinking of as you were um, thinking about the, the so-called new disorders or, uh, yeah, of the last 50 years or um. It's, it's larger than that. The new disorders, as I describe them, are not that really new because I interpreted them by using uh, a classic Freudian uh, approach called mm-hmm. the actual neurosis. Mm-hmm. But they are basically very different from, from classic psychoneurosis because they don't have the, the uh, meaningful symptoms. And of course, that fits the contemporary picture where, um, yeah, there's no no time for complex psychological development and things like that so you you get a more superficial um, kind of disorder um, think about make the, you, you can understand it the, easy, the easiest way to understand it sorry the easiest way to understand it is by making a comparison between a panic disorder and a phobic disorder in a panic disorder you get pure anxiety as such uh, and then underneath is separation anxiety if you look at uh, a phobic disorder then you have a really complex symbolic meaningful uh, neurosis and that's something different mm-hmm and um, right, and, and then, can be related to the, uh, go ahead. Sorry, and we can relate that. We can link that to the contemporary ideology, uh, but it's not a necessary link because it existed already at the time of Freud. Ah, uh huh. Right, because he he already wrote about so-called actual. Although yes. I think he did, didn't he mean something a little different by it. I think you are changing the meaning slightly. You know? Yes, it's true. Yes, of course. Yeah. We are hundred three years later. <laughs> yeah, what's, yeah, you know. What's a hundred years? Yeah, but um, so you don't totally link it to neoliberalism. You just think that it's a kind of, um, right, you don't have this kind of rigid causality in, in mind. Uh, well, so toward, toward the end of the book, you, um, you, you talk about, you know, I think at the last chapter in particular, but you talk a lot about authority uh, and how, so again, it's another kind of, um, well, I don't know if it's a purely causal argument, but you sort of set the stage for, for some of what's going on and, um, and this kind of evacu- evacuation of authority. So maybe you can speak to that, and since it also leads yeah. maybe into your next project or your next book, yeah. um, can you say, like, yeah, why, why it's disappeared, or do you think it's disappeared, yeah. and how do you define it? And so maybe. Well, uh, first of all, we have to go back to the idea of identity in order to understand the importance of authority. Um, we didn't go into that mm. uh, during the interview, so I need to retake that. Uh, I understand identity basically as uh, a relational concept. I am myself in relation to important others. I am myself to, uh, as a gender to the other gender. I am myself as a uh, husband to my wife. I I am uh, a parent to my children, I am a child to my parents, etc., etc. So identity is a relational concept. That's already in Freud the case mm-hmm. with, the, with the Oedipal complex, although he didn't call it that way. 
Now, if you look at those fundamental relations in our identity, one is very important, and that's the relationship towards authority, what Freud called the superego. And, of course, this has everything to do with a certain society, meaning patriarchy. I mean, that's why he, that's why Freud uh, talked about the Oedipal complex, and authority has to do with the father. Uh, and this is really important because patriarchy is disappearing in the West, in the Western world. Uh, and at the time of Freud, it was still very much there, but still, even at his time, it was already uh, weaker than it used to be. Uh, we had already Nietzsche and a number of uh, <laughs> other authors who were talking about it. A hundred years later, today, it has disappeared. Uh, meaning that we need to reinvent authority. We can't go back to patriarchal times, because if we do that, we will not find authority, we will find power, because the, the underlying structure that uh, made patriarchy possible, that underlying structure has disappeared. So if you try to reinstall it, uh, we will meet with power, and that's not a good idea. Mm. Uh, so the, the, the challenge that we are uh, living now, really, is the, the reinterpretation and reinvention of authority. Because we need it. Authority is the way in which we uh, handle our social relations. We can't do without it. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the reasons why um, the new pathology in neoliberalism uh, has changed uh, compared to Freudian times as well. Um, during the neoliberal times, the patriarchal, patriarchal authority is already almost gone, and that explains why we get so many regulations. For lack uh -huh. of authority, we create rules. Uh -huh. Rules and contracts right. and like that. And how do rules differ from this? I mean, I just want to just make it clear because, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you're saying you don't want to go back to some kind of patriarchy because I could see how it could be maybe even, again, willfully misinterpreted what you're saying, right? Like, oh, authority, is, we need more authority. So, in, so authority can slide into like authoritarianism or it can be interpreted. Yeah. That, that's what you're advocating. That's, that's not what you're advocating. <laughs> but that's not what you're advocating. I just want to make it clear. Yeah, yeah. No, no, of course no. no. And that's the risk of our times, huh? that uh, a number of people want to return to patriarchy and they will, they will create power institutions, but not uh, authority institutions. So when you say authority in the, in the positive uh, sense, um, you mean, you, and you don't mean rules because rules are, right, you mean the uh, sort no. of. Um, yeah, so if there is uh, authority, you don't need that many rules. If there is no authority, uh -huh. you can keep producing rules, but they won't work. So if you would define authority as a kind of, I'm sorry, I'm being very, um, is, 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 it, is it linked, to, it's linked to responsibility, it seems. I'm just trying to fill it with something. Um, is, it, is it the law? Is it, what, what is it, what actually is it? You know what I mean? In a positive well, sense. Can it, you define it's, it? It's not so difficult. Uh, yeah. Once you, you, you see the structure, it's rather easy to understand. Authority uh, is based on a threefold structure. Mm -hmm. Somebody has authority over someone else because the two of them believe in an external third element. Uh-huh, right. So okay. you need 
three things. One institution, another institution, or one person, another person, whatever, that isn't, that is not that important. But you need two people who together believe in something external to them. That's why you can never uh, have authority by yourself. That's impossible. You can only have power by yourself. Mm-hmm. And the patriarchy was based on the belief in the father, on the belief in the religions of the father, uh, and uh, everything around it. And that was shared by a huge number of people, and that's why that authority functions in a voluntary way, because there's a, a belief at the base of it. The belief in the father, belief in patriarchy, has gone. That has disappeared, so that external element uh, has disappeared, meaning that we are left with the two out of the mm. three, meaning two people or two institutions, and then you fall back on power. Mm-hmm. You have to do what I am telling you to do because I'm stronger than you are. Mm-hmm. That's power. Mm-hmm. And I'm directly in competition so with he, you, and there's no structural... Right, so authority yeah, is a structural... Yeah. You're, you're putting it in very structural terms, and it's, it's positioning vis-a-vis another yes. third term. So the, yeah. challenge, the challenge that we are living now is that we need to find a new third element. Hmm. Any suggestions? Where we believe. <laughs> yes, the collective. Yes, the collective. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the horizontal collective. And that has to do with the internet and with the, the digital the stuff. Uh, and, and it's a huge change because the uh, classic patriarchal uh, authority uh, was top down. The, mm-hmm. the pyramid is the best way to, to give an illustration of it. The new authority will be horizontal, will be bottom-up, and will be digital. Wow. Is this, is this, the, sec- so is this the, um, the next book, what it's about? Have we already covered it, or can you talk? So um, this is a, an excellent segue. It will be published in Dutch next week, so the, the, the oh. English uh, translation that will still be another year, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so this is so you ended this book on this with this chapter that also signals your your next book which is coming out very soon. Yes. Um, but at that moment I didn't knew that. <laughs> I just ended the book with a problem. Uh-huh, right, exactly. Well, you also talk about finding a, a sort of new balance between autonomy and and solidarity maybe and but this is yes of course yeah. right but what you wish you think is completely it's completely out of whack what, and it seems to me what you're also um saying with uh this this new authority right yeah so um okay uh do you want to say do you want to say more is there is there yet another book on the horizon or or is this is this all you want to say about <laughs> finished one, so uh, <laughs> probably there is one, but I'm not even aware of it right now. Okay. I'm not sure whether I'm already pregnant with a new book. <laughs> um, okay, well, Paul, thank you. So uh, we, we probably should wrap up, and uh, we've taken up enough, enough of your time. Um, we've been talking to Paul Verhaeghe. I'm trying to pronounce it correctly, I'm sorry, about his terrific book, uh, What About Me? Uh, the Struggle for Identity in a Market-Based Society. Um, Paul, thanks again uh, for doing this. and um, my pleasure. It was mine too. Uh, and thanks uh, to our audience, as always, for listening. Till next time. 